Reza. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. A little sleep uh, deprived, but doing well. Yeah, we both have infants. We know something about that life. I know. This is my fourth infant, and yet it somehow doesn't get any easier. <laughs> so, so it doesn't get easier. I mean, I'm on number two, and I figured, you know, something, something would change. No, no. It doesn't. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, Rosa, who are you? Tell people what you do, actually, who before I? who you are. What do you do? Wow, what a complicated uh, question. <laughs> I do a lot of things, but I guess, first and foremost, I'm a writer and a storyteller. I think that's kind of how I make sense of the various jobs that I hold. I am a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. I am a scholar of world religions. I am a TV host. I write books. I produce television shows and movies. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I mean, you know, I got a lot of different things that I do, but they all more or less align around the idea of using stories to expand people's minds and to reframe their perceptions and to break down walls. That's kind of how I see it. My wife and I, we, we have this kind of uh, life motto where we always say, don't have a job, have a mission. If you have a mission, then, you know, you, you can figure out multiple ways to get paid for that mission. <laughs> you can call those things jobs. But having a mission allows you to, you know, have this kind of umbrella over you and, and allows you to dip your toe into different places and, and, you know, not get bored with life. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And actually, let's talk about your mission and how you got there. I personally love your background story. I've heard you speak in a few places, but for my audience, how did you get here? I would love to hear about your journey coming to the States, kind of growing up and why why you chose to study religion. Coming to America. <laughs> well, I was born in Iran and in 1979, there was a revolution and my father who was a deeply irreligious man, communist with, you know, sort of extreme atheistic viewpoints, kind of saw what was happening and decided that it would be best if the family left for a while just to see what, what was going to happen, how, how things were going to shake out, let, let things settle in a little bit. Obviously, that was 40 years ago. So it it did not shake out all that well for you listeners who are unaware of history. And we came to the United States. Actually, we first arrived in Oklahoma, which I still don't have an answer for. Don't <laughs> really understand. Enid, Oklahoma is where we ended up when we first came to America. My only explanation for it is that my dad, when he was in college, did one of those like semesters abroad. And went to some school in Oklahoma. And then I think when it was time to come to America, he just assumed Oklahoma was America. <laughs> He's like, I know this great yeah. place. Which, by the way, is true. Oklahoma is really America. But we were there for, you know, a, a little while. And then fairly soon we realized there's a lot more of America. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so we headed west and ended up in the Bay Area. And that's basically where I grew up. By the time we came to the States, of course, that was, 
you know, the height of the Iran hostage crisis, the 444 days in which Americans were being held hostage in the U.S. embassy in Tehran. So as you can imagine, it wasn't the best time in the world to be either Muslim or Iranian in America, as, as I like to say, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. <laughs> and all those problems are, are settled. Uh, you see, back then, people used to be racist, Layla. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Anyway, so, you know, it was, as you can imagine, I'm seven years old, eight years old, and trying very hard to kind of fit in with everyone, going to school, seeing my teacher, you know, wear a little yellow ribbon in solidarity with the hostages, and seeing my fellow students wear those Ayatollah Khomeini shirts, you know, that was like bomb Iran shirts. Oh, um, I didn't realize that was a trend. Oh, I missed, hugely popular, I missed that one. Yeah. It was like a picture of Khomeini with like a, like a target on it, you know. This is like before Etsy when people were DIY. <laughs> yeah, like, this was mass produced. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, it, it's kind of impressive that you got your hands on those, on those shirts. There's no internet. You'd have to like literally go to a store. You have to go to a mall. Yeah, somebody really tried. Like that was not a quick project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, now that I think about it, I am kind of impressed. So you know, I was it was a very immigrant community, lots of Mexicans. So I just told everybody that I was Mexican. So much easier. It was so much easier. <laughs> and you know, I kind of look Mexican. I learned how to break dance. That helped. <laughs> I, I I knew how to say like orle and vato, and that was it. But that that turned out to be enough actually. You're like, let me let me be a very, you know, un, undiscriminated against type of American. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's the funny thing is that turns out Americans don't like Mexicans either. A hard lesson at seven. Yeah, hard. I should have chosen. <laughs> Discrimination and racism are real. I have a friend of mine who kind of had a very similar story to mine, but he told people he was Italian. And I was like, genius. Misstep on Reza, seven-year-old Reza's part. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I say Italian? Anyway. <laughs> And then, you know, just kind of carried on in, in that way. When I was in high school, you know, still trying to figure out ways to belong. And I went to a, a, an evangelical youth camp and I heard the gospel message for the first time. And, you know, it was a transformative moment for me. I don't want to I don't want to pretend that, you know, that the emotion that I felt when I converted to Christianity wasn't real. It was a very real emotion. But I also don't want to pretend that it didn't also have to do with my feelings of, you know, not belonging in this country. I always like to say that Jesus is your American identity card, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter what skin color you are. It doesn't matter how funny your name is. If you love Jesus, you're American, right? And it actually worked. It, it really did. It was kind of you know, I felt the most accepted that I've, that I've felt in a long time. I'm one of these people, kind of like you, Layla, where I don't really do anything half-assed. So, like, you know, if I'm going to convert to evangelical Christianity, I'm going to be, like, the greatest evangelical Christian. I'm going to be, like, you know, like basically the next Jesus. That was my, that was my goal. Which is a pretty good goal. Like if I, if I was your parent, I would be like, oh, I'm not mad about it. In so, <laughs> insofar as life goals, wanting to be Jesus, yeah, is, is up there. And then basically, you know, I went to college and I went to college to, to be a writer. I mean, I, I've all, I should, I should pull back and say, I've never, ever wanted to be anything except a writer. There was never, 
you know, a moment in my life that I was like, I want to be a fireman. No, I mean, I, like, I wanted to be a writer from the first moment that I knew what writing and writers were. Of course, for, you know, those in your audience who might be Persians or Iranians, if you've ever tried to tell your mother that you're going to be a writer, you know, you know what I was dealing with. Like, my, I remember very clearly I told my mom, I was like, you know, mom, I think I want to be a writer. And she said, who's stopping you from writing? <laughs> I mean, you be a doctor and then you write. Nobody's stopping you from writing. You know, Reza, I have to say, as the mother of a two-year-old half-Persian, she's going to be a neurosurgeon. So uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. just to be clear, Camila is absolutely on that path. Yeah, I was like, I was like, no, 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 no. I, like, I want to do it for a living. And she was like, that's not a living. That's not a real thing. You know, people, people write. You write. It's not a, like, that's not a hard thing. And so I went to school and I was like, okay, well, I, I want to be a writer. That's, that's what I want to be. I guess I need a job. And I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Those are the three possible options available to you um, as an Iranian. And so, you know, I started studying religion because I was really good at it and I was really into it. And I had this kind of extensive background because I was like going to be like, you know, super, superman uh, religion. And it was an interesting experience because, you know, obviously studying religion in an academic institution is quite different than learning about religion in your evangelical Christian church. <laughs> and so it was a pretty dramatic experience, but it was also mind expanding. It did eventually lead me to leave Christianity. Eventually, I did return to Islam as my sort of preferred method of religious you know, language. and. You know, I just kept going and, and getting degrees after degrees because, you know, the, the problem is that eventually if you stop school, you have to, you know, go work. But if you just stay in school forever, right, then they'll just keep giving you degrees. They'll just keep, there's no, there's no like limit. I don't know if people know that. There's literally no limit. You just keep going. So I just did. And I just started collecting degrees in, in both creative writing and in religion. And, you know, it never kind of occurred to me that these two things would become a single career. I just sort of always assumed, well, I'll become a professor, I'll, I'll you know, teach in, a, in an academic setting, and then on the sly, I will write books. And I had written a novel when I was at writing school at Iowa, and that novel got me an agent. and the we were kind of ready to go out and and sell the novel and my agent kind of just was like hey so do you have any other books that you're thinking about writing anything else like maybe who knows maybe we can get like two books out of this thing and this i should mention was 2003 because that'll make sense in a moment and i said well yeah as a matter of fact i'm i've got this idea about sort of a popular book about islam and she was like i'm sorry what islam what Islam? <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, yeah, Islam. And she's like, let's do that. Let's do that book. You know, again, it's like two years, 18 months removed from 9-11. So she helped me put together a book proposal. And then we kind of went out with the book proposal and the novel. And the book proposal got so much attention. There was like, you know, big auction for it that we took the novel off the table and just sold the book proposal. 
wrote that book and then afterwards and it was you know was wonderful and it was a great success and then i i you know it was time to write the the next book and i said to the publisher great so now you know let's do the novel and they were like yeah that's cute what if we do another book just like the one you just wrote instead <laughs> and i was like no that's not like i'm i'm a i'm a writer i'm a novelist like that's what i want to that's what I want to do. And they're like, well, what if we paid you this much money? And I said, okay, yeah, let's do exactly <laughs> what you want me to do. I will do that exact thing. And that became my second book. And then I said, how about the novel? And they said, how about another one? And I said, okay. And then next thing you know, you know, I became this kind of nonfiction writer, which is strange. But in a sense, it's it's actually great because being able to combine my my sort of scholarly knowledge of religions with you know my in-depth study and an experience as a creative writer allowed me to write books about religion that became much more popular than they would have otherwise i mean they became books that people would actually read <laughs> instead of books that just kind of collect dust on a library shelf somewhere. First of all, that's an awesome journey. Second of all, I chuckled when you said writing school in Iowa, because that's like people who say, oh, I went to business school in Boston. It's like, dude, just say you went to Harvard Business School. You know, what's funny is, as a matter of fact, I did go to school in Boston. Well, not Boston, just, you know, right outside of Boston in Cambridge. Not Cambridge, you know, not Cambridge, England, Cambridge, Massachusetts. You went to Harvard too. But the writing school in Iowa is like the best writing school. That program is super prestigious. And people go to Iowa and come out with yeah, these bangers yeah. about God, apparently, it, and other yeah, things. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. It's it's like a very it's a very elite humble brag. Nobody gets it. It's one of those humble brags <laughs> that nobody gets. I totally got it. It wasn't lost on me. And I, I have to say, I was like laughing because before we started this podcast, I was talking about Y Systems and saying how mm. like the company's doing well. We've raised a lot of money, and it, I, you know, if I didn't wear hijab, I would be basic. But with hijab, people think it's extraordinary. Yeah. Like I've never heard of anyone being like, you know, my business success is due to my hijab. Like that's a sentence you don't hear that often. <laughs> but I was about to say the same thing about your writing career. I didn't realize that you actually have the same <laughs> journey in some way. Oh, man. Okay. Well, listen, I, I have a question. You said something really cool once that stuck with me. I don't know if it was cool. It was cool. It was cool because it represented a lot of things that I feel and I see. So I remember you saying somewhere, some podcast, I listen to a lot of podcasts. You said something like religion, first and foremost, is an identity yeah, before my, it's a set big, of beliefs. That's my big line. That's the one that goes on my gravestone. <laughs> yeah. Religion, religion is far more a matter of identity than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. And I think you know, it's one of those things, people, when they hear that, I think it at first doesn't make any sense because we think of religion as the things that you believe, the rituals that you practice, like that's what religion is. And certainly, of course, you know, beliefs and practices are, are important to the religious experience. But 79% of the population of the United States of America identifies, according to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, as Christian. I want you to just really let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, honestly? Honestly? Yeah. Come on now. Like, I mean, 
it's it's absurd, you know. Obviously, that seventy nine percent does not read the Bible on a regular basis. They couldn't probably tell you anything about Jesus except that he was born in a manger and he died on a cross. That that seventy nine percent most certainly doesn't go to church on a regular basis, you know. Just look at Trump voters, and you know that that seventy nine percent doesn't even bother to actually live out any aspect of the Christian identity. The vast majority of that 79%, when they say I'm a Christian, they're not making a faith statement. They're making an identity statement. This is true, by the way, all over the world. You know, and someone says I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist. More often than not, they are making an identity statement more than they're making a statement about their faith or their beliefs, you know, which oftentimes, again, the data and the surveys by Pew bear this out. That when you ask them questions about their faith or ask them questions about theology, they either totally disagree (laughs) or don't even know what you're talking about. But it's because it doesn't matter. Because when they say I'm a Christian, it's akin to saying I'm American. You know, it's it's akin to saying I'm Republican. It all just means the same thing. It's a it's a marker of identity and it's one of many markers of identity, which, by the way, explains why, you know, religion comes in so many different varieties and flavors, right? Where it explains why you can have, you know, two people who call themselves Christian, two people who read the Bible, you know, devotedly, two people who go to church every Sunday, and yet have vastly different views, vastly different interpretations of the Bible and their faith. Because if religion is just one marker of many markers of your identity, then all of those markers are going to affect this one marker called religion, right? Your economic status, your race, your ethnicity or or a national background, your gender, your sexual orientation, all of these things are deeply embedded when an individual says, I'm Christian, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish. There is no such thing as just religion in a vacuum. It it doesn't exist. And you know what's actually really wild? So I put on hijab at a pretty young age, mostly because I honestly, I was really young. I went to Islamic school. My mom was a strong Muslim lead. And I don't think I really realized I wore it, wore it till college, which was after 9-11. And I had to think like, is this, is this what I want to do? And the answer was yes, long story short. But back then it wasn't cool. Like it wasn't a woke identity the way it is now. And something that's really fascinating about the Muslim title is I think in the earlier stages of our community, it was more of maybe a religious title. And as it's evolved, we're now seeing the rise of the cultural Muslim. And I honestly, I'm curious as to what you credit, but I very much credit (laughs) Donald Trump for the rise of the cultural Muslim and for this identity that's suddenly like, yeah, like I'm Muslim, lowercase m, big tent, throw me in that tent, I'm Muslim. And it's really fascinating to see because I, I, as somebody who claimed the identity when it like wasn't that cool, but it's pretty fascinating. I don't know if you've observed it. So Yes, there are cultural Muslims, although I have a problem with the phrase. But I think using that phrase is anathema to understanding what religion is. See, the mistake is thinking that there is this 
thing that exists called Islam, right? It's a, it's a thing that ex- exists in the world independent of Muslims. It exists in a vacuum. It has certain theological precepts and doctrines and values and ideals. And then there are people who are, you know, attached to that thing uh, either very closely or in a distant way. They're very, either very pious, and so they're super Muslim, or, you know, they're sort of like cultural Muslim. And while I understand why people, everyone, thinks that way, it couldn't be more wrong. There is literally no such thing as Islam. It does not exist. It exists only insofar as it is expressed by a Muslim. Islam is whatever a Muslim says it is. Christianity is whatever a Christian says it is. Religion does not exist in a vacuum. Scripture is nothing except words on a page unless and until someone encounters those words. It is the encounter with Scripture that provides meaning. Without that encounter, there is no meaning. It doesn't inherently exist. But of course, if that meaning comes solely through the individual's encounter with Scripture, that means that by definition, the meaning is going to be subjective. By definition, the meaning is dependent upon the person doing the encountering. And that is why there are 10,000 forms of Islam. That is why there are 10,000 forms of Christianity. If what I just said wasn't true, there would be one Islam. There would be one Christianity. And that's just not the case. First of all, I I don't disagree. That that encounter of the scripture is faith or feeling the faith or whatever it may be. But it's interesting because effectively, like cultural Islam, you're saying would make the assumption that there is a baseline Islam. And, you know, the culture was kind of a, a sub subreddit of that baseline or of the shared understanding. Yes. I mean, is that the point? I think yes. But even there, there's, you know, there's a lot of d- conversations about what that baseline actually, well, what is the baseline then? Yeah. What is it? And who gets and who gets to define it? You know, oh, a baseline for a Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus is God. Uh, excuse me. Th- no. First of all, there are literally hundreds of Christian sects that, that refuse to accept Jesus's divinity, and yet they call themselves Christian. And more importantly, there is very real, valid, legitimate readings of the scripture that completely reject the notion that Jesus is God incarnate. So, okay, uh, then what do we say? Like, okay, a Christian is somebody who follows uh, Jesus's teachings. Okay, well, that seems to make sense, except that the vast majority of Christians absolutely do not follow Jesus's teachings. They follow Paul's teachings. It's Paul who created Christianity, not Jesus. 
Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So if that's true, that means that every Christian needs to be kosher. <laughs> every Christian needs to be circumcised. Paul said, you don't have to follow the law. The law is the law of death, and Jesus destroyed it once and for all. The vast majority of Christians do what Paul tells them to do, not what Jesus tells them to do. Right? The same is true for Muslims. No matter how baseline you get, <laughs> there is suddenly room for interpretation. And that's because religion is, by definition, interpretation. And so, by definition, all interpretations are valid. Now, that doesn't mean that all interpretations are good or, you know, positive or worthy or logical or reasonable or whatever, but it becomes very difficult to have a true understanding of what religion is and then to tell someone, you're not doing it right, you know? So this is super interesting because you're you're kind of based on what I see your hill to die on is that people yes they may believe different things but ultimately we all have humanity in common and breaking down the foreign and the mm -hmm. weird has been one of, one of your things as you've found yourself in Hollywood first of all how did you go from <laughs> all of that you know to Hollywood and second of all like why like what what about that message is so important yeah, to you um, that it's, you've made it your career well so i think what what's important about this message is that Religion has been historically used as a, a dividing mechanism, right? It has been a source of tremendous conflict. And so I think that anyone who can try to help create a different understanding, not just of religions, but of religion in general, anyone who can help to sort of explain the different religions of the world in a way that's understandable, in a way that, that is familiar, is doing good, right? Because that is trying to sort of take this heavily charged subject and make it more manageable, make it a force for good and a, and a force for peace and understanding. And that's, you know, kind of what I've been trying to do in, in all the work that I do. How did Hollywood get into it? Well, I mean, part of it is that, you know, I, I moved to L.A., <laughs> um, I guess now 15 years ago, and any of your listeners who are in L.A. know that it's unavoidable, you know? It's like <laughs> living in Wisconsin and not eating fried cheese. Like, you, it's not a like – you have – Hollywood is everywhere, and if you have a modicum <laughs> of talent in this town – particularly, you know, writerly talent or storytelling talent, Hollywood's going to call. They're going to they're going to show up. In my case, in 2005, I was uh connected to a partner of mine, Mahia Tusi, another another Iranian, who was a director, a filmmaker, to do a, a documentary project that was basically about like what's next in the Middle East? What's next? Like what's coming around the corner in the Middle East? This was 2006, actually. So he and I got together. Uh, you know, we both know the region pretty well. You know, we're from that region. So we sat down and we 
talked about what are these trends that we're seeing and, and what, is it, what does it look like and what's going to happen. And we came up with an idea for a documentary called The Boom Generation. The theory of the documentary was that 75% of the population of the greater Middle East is under the age of 30, 50% is under the age of 20, that this youth bulge, which is active and globalized and plugged in thanks to the internet, yet without jobs, without opportunities, and you know, often in political situations that don't give them an opportunity to express themselves, that very soon there's going to be a kind of explosion, a youth explosion in the Middle East, and that you know, the world can either recognize it and ride this the wave that's about to come or not right uh, recognize it and essentially you know have the wave crash down upon them of course didn't you know it yeah five years later well four years later you have the green revolution and five years later you have the arab spring so uh, you know we were right but as we went out to pitch this idea we had one white guy after another tell us that we don't know what we're talking about. Arabs, no, they're, they're too lazy. You think Mubarak is going somewhere? Get out of my office. All of this stuff. And, it, you know, we just kind of looked at each other and we realized the problem isn't the storyteller. The problem is the gatekeeper. So we need to become the gatekeepers. And so we took the idea for the documentary, The Boom Generation, and we turned it into a production company called BoomGen. And mm. what we dedicated ourselves to doing was telling stories, producing, developing stories that touch on this part of the world and our interests and can sort of have the, the power to really change the way that people think about themselves, about others, about the world. And, you know, we started doing that and it took a long time to have any kind of success, but it's, it, it took a long time to get people to actually even believe that we can do it. But, you know, it's been a kind of a fun, crazy ride. And we have a couple of shows on TV, a couple of shows that are about to be on TV, you know, a couple of films that, that we, that we worked on and, you know, a bunch of things in the in the pipeline in various stages of development, as they say here in Los Angeles, and uh, and it's been great. And I think the thing that we're probably most excited about is we have um, starting, I think, in March. At least that's what they tell us. We'll see. We have a show on CBS that is premiering called "The United States of Al," which uses the very familiar sitcom genre, very popular sort of lowest common denominator type level of entertainment, right, is the sitcom, but to tell this incredible story about the relationship between a Marine Corps vet from the war in Afghanistan and his Afghan interpreter, who after years and years of struggle and, and trying comes to America. You may be familiar with the situation of the more than 50,000 Afghan interpreters who risk their lives and the lives of their families in order to help the U.S. forces in Afghanistan only to be abandoned to the Taliban when we all left. And this ridiculous backlog of interpreters who have been begging to get some kind of asylum in the United States, which is what they were literally promised you know, when they signed up for the job. 
And so it's this kind of beautiful, heartwarming, hilarious story about the friendship between these two guys in Ohio. (laughs) And it's a character that no one, no one in America has ever seen before. Certainly not on an 8.30 p.m. CBS sitcom. And we don't hide the fact that we're using this entertainment to get people to think differently, to reframe their perceptions about Muslims, about you know, Middle Easterners, about that war, you know, about the U.S. military, about the U.S. government. That's how you deliver a message that really has the opportunity to transform people's minds. Pop culture, man, pop culture. That's the, that's the key. That's exactly what I was thinking as you were speaking was the the thread across all of your multitudes, your religious multitude, your media multitude is just creativity. And it's actually pretty incredible because as you noted earlier, it's, you know, not necessarily <laughs> the path that folks are directed in. And typically they're career paths that require either access to people who have done it or y- you fall on oh, your face no. a lot, right? Like I certainly did not really know many people who raised money and built a company like this. I know a lot of surgeons and a lot of doctors. It's, it's really incredible to see that creativity ultimately can get you there and it can shape hearts and shape minds and really help rewrite narratives that have serious impacts. Like the narrative of the docile, oddly like, you know, oppressed, but angry and violent Muslim woman that has real effects on women who look like me that get their scarves pulled off and things will happen. Maybe they don't get the job. Maybe it's not as violent, but that, that creativity that you're applying in this form to touch so many hearts and minds on Mm -hmm. such a large level has those impacts and people don't realize, maybe they realize it. I mean, I certainly do. But I think people really don't realize it. <laughs> yeah, and, and listen, it's not the 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 life of the mind is a a struggle. It's a difficult life, and it's fraught with failures. And I have a lot of failures to that I can talk about, but which I won't. But it goes back to kind of what I was saying before: have a mission, not a job, right? Have a mission, mm-hmm. pursue that mission with passion, with zeal, and with commitment. And I guarantee you, eventually someone's going to pay you for it. <laughs> you know, eventually you'll, you'll make a living out of it. I don't need to tell you this. The world is full of people who desperately wanted to do one thing, but, you know, thought, well, but, you know, I, I, I need to make a living. So I, I'll work in this capacity until I can get on my feet. And then next thing you know, 30, 40 years pass. (laughs) Like it's just a matter of saying Mm. to yourself, I'm going to do this no matter what Mm. I'm going to do this for free. (laughs) I I think about every single job that I have. And I mean this sincerely, every job that I have, I would do for free. Mm. It's just great that I don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of kids. It's just great that I don't have to. A lot of kids in a life in Los Angeles, you know, that, that those bills don't pay themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny when you're talking about LA, a random anecdote. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a coffee shop and somebody's opened the door and later I see him on a billboard and I'm like, oh, that's the dude that like, oh, that was nice of him. He's a nice guy. He opened the door and I had a big stroller. <laughs> 
Anyway, amazing. I think that's a perfect way to end is, you know, the mission, y'all, not the job, the mission with Reza Aslan. Mission, not a job. His, uh, <laughs> maybe his his uh, fifth fifth book on religion will be will be that, but we'll see. So <laughs> you've written four books on religion. Is that right, Reza? I've written uh, four books on religion and a uh, an anthology on religion and I've written an anthology on literature from the Middle East and my next book is actually a biography not I mean like, there's some religion in there but uh, but it's not a, a religion book that's super awesome give me the plugs where can people find you and know when you're gonna drop the book so they can all go pre-order it well you can always hear me yell and swear on Twitter at Reza Aslan that's the best place if you if you uh, don't mind that kind of stuff or on Facebook at Reza Aslan official. And obviously you can always contact me at rezaaslan.com. And yeah, US of Al, the United States of Al premieres on CBS this March. Catch it. I will catch it. I will plug it. I will talk about it. And I thank you so much for this time. I will put everything in the show notes, guys. So you can follow Reza in his journey. Reza, I appreciate your time so much. I look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you.